0: You're listening to WERALP Arlington, and this is The Melting Pot, where we learn about Arlington through what people eat. I'm your host, Mel Chang. This week, we have a special Mardi Gras edition of The Melting Pot in store for you. I talk with the Arlington Church that has been hosting a pancake supper for more than 30 years on Shrove Tuesday. But first... David Guas, chef, restaurant owner, cookbook author, and television personality, joins us to talk about king cake and southern cuisine. We met up at his Bayou Bakery in Courthouse. David Guas, thank you so much for coming on to The Melting Pot and having me in Bayou Bakery.
1: You bet. Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Mardi Gras is right around the corner. What type of preparations is your restaurant doing for that?
1: Well, here specifically in Arlington, we're in full swing with King Cake production. So that started on January 6th, which is 12 days after Christmas, the day of the epiphany, uh, the 12th night. Um, And that kind of kicks off carnival uh, season, um, you know, from a calendar standpoint. And so we'll, we'll be doing that all the way up until Mardi Gras Day, which... Uh, This year is uh, February 28th, uh, Tuesday, and, um, you know, we've got a lot of catering, um, so we're kind of locking in big uh, uh, proposals for um, catering events that are Mardi Gras kind of driven uh, theme events. Um, We put out a couple email blasts to some local concierge hotels and property manager to sort of uh, remind them about uh, using us as a happy hour kind of carnival kind of fun place. We we have a few things up, but we don't get too crazy with the decorations until uh, February, um, just because a lot of people don't identify January with Carnival. Right. So you know we can't really you know kind of blow it out uh, for for every single day. So you know we generally feel a a, a big push a a couple weeks uh, prior to Mardi Gras Day. So uh, after the second uh, you know uh, first week in February, going into the second week, we'll we'll really start to feel it here.
0: For those of us who aren't as familiar with the celebration, can you explain what king cake is?
1: Sure. Um, The king cake is, um, uh, you know, historically was meant to be um, uh, sort of a, uh, it's got French, you know, origin um, and, um, you know, what what happened with a lot of things that um, the French and and other uh, groups brought to uh, New Orleans, um, you know, we kind of made it our own. Um, the The significance of the colors—purple, green, and gold—signify um, um, uh, faith, justice, and power. Um, and um, now, more modern-day sort of um, decor on a cake. Uh, you know, obviously, the baby uh, is is sort of what kind of people chuckle about. Um, so. You know, we do uh, give a baby in each box. We don't actually um, insert the baby into the
2: cake.
1: Uh, In New Orleans, that's what we do. That's what the bakeries do. So you'll pick it up and it'll already be in there. Um, We're a little bit more careful about, you know, choking hazards and things (laughs) like that. Uh, granted, we could put a sticker on the outside of the box, but we just choose not to. So um, we do throw a couple beads in there, and we actually put a 5x6 um, a uh, postcard in there talking about the history of Carnival. Because for us in this concept, since day one, going on now six years, you know anybody can put out a roast beef sandwich. Um, but you know, for us, we tell stories through our food, and we uh, generally uh, try to connect uh, the cultural uniqueness uh, through um, our concept. So not just food, but through, you know, the index cards that we give you uh, to call out your name. You know, we, we sort of model the 64 parishes of the state of Louisiana. So everything has a little kind of subtle, you know, um, educational sort of uh, yeah. connection uh, just because New Orleans is such a unique city.
0: Yeah. What do you miss about New Orleans having moved here?
1: You know, if you'd asked me seven years ago, I'd say everything. Um... Now that I have my own place that celebrates New Orleans and Louisiana and sort of the Gulf Coast South, um, there's still plenty of things that I miss. The smells, uh, landmarks, institutions that I would go to and, and dine in. Um, but I get my fill on a daily basis by just showing up to work every day. Um, so, you know, there's a little bit of home in, in everywhere I look. Uh, within the space so that's comforting so that void is you know sort of partially filled now um, uh, going on uh, 18 years now so.
0: And I understand that kind of your love obviously of New Orleans probably inspired the opening of Bayou Bakery in 2010. Can you tell us a little bit about how uh, the restaurant came about?
1: Yeah it's celebrating my native city I mean born and raised in in that unique city and so I, uh, after leaving, uh, having the pastry chef's uh, position with uh, Passion Food Hospitality, I opened up multiple restaurants as the, you know on their you know, opening culinary team, um, and I left uh, the group in 2007 to explore my first, um, you know, concept, my first um, sort of project that I was in charge of, that I developed, that I designed, um, and so the subtleties are there, and you know, if you're from Louisiana or New Orleans, you know, you come in here and. You know, the first instinct, like we all have, is to discredit places that sort of advertise themselves as being Louisiana because we're so often disappointed. Yeah. You know, we see these places that say they're Creole or Cajun, and they've got Mardi Gras beads and masks up year-round, and that's just a flag for me, being a a local and a native, uh, because we we don't... we don't put those type of decorations out year-round. So, you know, there's certain things. So I think that, you know, initially it was to prove, you know, prove to people that we were authentic and legit, even though, you know, not everything we do is New Orleans. Um, you know, we have the, a majority of the concept is modeled after the New Orleans that I grew up in. So,
0: so when you were crafting the menu, what type of considerations did you take into, um, given this location, D.C.? We're not quite in the south, Um what kind of was your thinking about what to put on the menu
1: you know what I didn't really restrict myself from from doing anything based on demographics um, I there's so many transient people here um, that most of our following I'd say probably 70% is based on uh, people that are from southern states. Hmm. Um, so, they come in and they see pimento cheese and they go, oh, and you can just see, you can tell when they first come here for the first time, or they see we have grits on the menu on the weekend. Um, so, these are very recognizable, very personal items to a lot of people. So, um, you know, uh, like any smart business person, I'm patting myself on the back a little bit. Uh, we got in with the menu that I thought would work and then we tweaked it. Um, And we tweaked it specifically to our neighborhood. Um, So if something wasn't selling, we looked at why. And if something wasn't being served properly or didn't hold well, um, we adjusted it. So when the owner is there seven days a week for the first two and a half years, you can make those type of decisions uh, on the fly. So that's kind of how we did, and kind of here we are.
0: What's the most popular things on your menu?
1: Um, I'd say one of our signature sandwiches is definitely the muffalata. Um, you know the ham, the mortadella, the salami, the olive salad, the aged provolone, and the sesame sort of Italian roll. Uh, we serve ours warm here, unlike Central Grocery in New Orleans that serves theirs room temperature. Um, and um, ours are also a personal size. Definitely the gumbo, um, and believe it or not, year round, um, you know sales don't drop too too much during the summer uh, for the hot soup. Um, we just recently, after six years, started doing um, changing our gumbo constantly. So. One day you may come in and it's a seafood gumbo, and the next day you may come in and it's a sort of a dark roux uh, chicken and andouille gumbo. So we're, we're we're often kind of get bored ourselves in the back, so we, we kind of do things for ourselves, and it ends up being initially you know ultimately for our for our customers that, that frequent us. So I definitely say the gumbo, the deviled eggs, and then our biscuits and then the beignets. Um, you know uh, the beignets we sell probably on average about 100 150 orders a day. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a big cloud of powdered sugar is sort of floating around here on Saturdays and Sundays. And biscuits the same. We average probably about 150 biscuits a day. Uh, so the weekends, those numbers um, triple. Um, and obviously, like on a Monday, we might sell 60. But on a Saturday, we may, may sell 150. So all, you know, hand-rolled and punched out by hand and, and baked uh, um you know, day of. So um, you know, biscuits are definitely a popular item as well. And biscuits are very personal for people. So they have the the memory sort of burned into their uh, psyche of sort of um, you know their grandmother or their aunt or their mother or whomever. Um, and so uh, it's a it's a tough thing to do southern cuisine. Yeah. Um, you know, as simple as it is, and as homey as it is, and as rustic as it is, you're you're kind of you can't just be anybody doing it because you're, you'll get railed.
0: Yeah. Um, I read your cookbook, Damn Good Sweet. Mm Mm-hmm. Are you then, or how surprised were you that you would end up as a pastry chef given that you sort of have this love of sweets?
1: Well, the pastry chef was really just the beginning of my career, um, and that was an accidental thing, um. I went to culinary school um, and did not study pastries at all, and then the first job that I got outside of school in New Orleans at the Windsor Court Hotel, um, the main savory kitchen was not hiring, they had no positions open, I applied there, Um, and then short story long, it's. Um, A friend of a friend of my father's grabbed my application from HR, brought it down to the pastry chef, and then I interviewed with the pastry chef, and then I got my foot in the door to the hotel that way and learned everything on the job when it came to pastries. Mm -hmm. Um, Then I was brought here by that executive chef of that hotel to open D.C. Coast uh, June of 1998, and then I was their pastry chef and opened four of their restaurants with them. But once I left, um, I said I wanted to do my gumbos again, and I wanted to do etouffets and jambalayas. And so we dropped the word pastry, and I became just chef-owner David Gloss, doing kind of what I was born to do, which is just cook.
0: What do you uh, cook at home?
1: Oh, my God. Anything and everything. Last night, it was uh, pan-seared, grass-fed buffalo burgers uh, on uh, buttered Martin's buns with shaved uh, Vidalia onions and homemade (laughs) bread-and-butter pickles. Uh, we often do sort of nostalgic things, kind of as a riff. So my kids have never seen the inside of a McDonald's, but one, not one day we'll plan to do a, a Big Mac from scratch. So we'll make, I'll make the sauce, and we'll shred the lettuce, and we'll do the extra bun in between and do thin patties. Uh, a couple nights ago, um, we, I, I split some uh, chicken breasts and stuffed them uh with uh with ham and cheese and did like a cordon bleu style uh item um you know we're always doing taco night on tuesdays so my wife doesn't eat uh red meat so we'll we'll sort of cook some ground turkey and make some some turkey tacos so it's it's constant Um, The nice thing about closing at 7 is I'm usually home by that time, so um, we're not a late night place. Uh, My mornings are very early, so I'm out the door and don't see the kids in the morning. But I get the evenings with them, and so that that sort of, even though I'm here all day, I I love to go home and, and cook for the family.
0: Are your kids good eaters?
1: good eaters and they're good cooks
0: oh really yes
1: my oldest was on chop junior about six months ago so he competed on the food network and so yes uh, they've been exposed to very unique flavors uh, at a very young age so they have a very uh um, sort of a refined palate
2: do you little critics
0: (laughs) do you ever introduce um cuban cooking at home since your dad
1: yeah yep black beans and rice Uh, My kids love picadillo, Uh uh, but we'll do that with ground turkey so my wife can eat it. Uh Um, And so, uh, it's, um, yes, I mean, pressed Cuban sandwiches, one of their favorite sandwiches on the planet. Um, And I haven't yet brought them to Miami to taste the ones that I grew up on. Um, uh, but they have had them in New Orleans at Vasquez, which is the, the Cuban uh, sort of shop that I grew up eating them at in New Orleans. Um, right there in sort of uh, sort of uh, not mid city, but sort of uh, part of Orleans Parish on Franklin Avenue in Gentilly area. There's an old family uh, Cuban place called Vasquez, and uh, they do uh, great Cuban food.
0: How did you get involved with the National Honey Board?
1: National Honey Board, you know, I, I don't know. It's been five or six years. I, I don't know how they found me. That's a funny story because we, you know, we kind of. I think we both. I mean, they know, and I, I, I used to know, <laughs> uh, but my memory is is a little uh, less. Uh, you know, it's not as strong as it used to be. Um, but a great relationship. We've been working together for four or five years now, um, you know, and you know, I travel with them four or five times a year, I develop recipes for their website, um, and I just kind of do what I was already doing, in a sense, but now there's a formed, you know, sort of more uh, um, sort of official relationship and partnership uh, between us. Um, they're based out of Firestone, Colorado, about 20 minutes south of uh, Denver. And um, just a great, great group. Um, You know, I've got to meet people that are on the board that are beekeepers, um, that are amazing individuals. Um, And, um, you know, I just get to talk about honey. I mean, I use it every day in the restaurant. Um, and so I, I have a personal collection at the house. I have, you know, anywhere from 40 to 50 varietals at home and people now buy them for me and give them to me as gifts because they know uh, my connection with honey. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just sort of one of those wonderful relationships. It's a very natural organic relationship. So.
0: And you can taste the difference between different honeys? Of course. Like, how does one honey taste different from the other?
1: just like a flower smells different than another flower.
0: Okay, just a subtle, subtle hint?
1: Subtle floral aspects that, you know. um, Now, can I tell you what flower blind and tell you what meadow it was grown in? No, of course not. Um, you know, we shop with our eyes, so we can definitely go from there um, and sort of know that there's going to be a lighter flavor or um, sort of a milder honey by, by sort of a, a, a lighter colored uh, medium body ambered honeys, you know, kind of go to the next stage and then more robust darker honeys that have a hard time trans uh, allowing light through them, uh, you know, tend to be obviously very bold uh, honeys like sourwood and uh, eucalyptus and avocado all these sort of really unique honeys, um, you know, uh, sort of those really dark molasses type of, uh, of colored honeys.
0: In Clarendon and in Arlington, we've seen a lot of restaurants kind of close over the past year and mm-hmm. kind of struggling. Why do you think your restaurant has done so well, or why do you think it's changed in the climate?
1: I'm struggling just like everybody else. Oh. You know, it's 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 a very difficult industry. Um You know, uh, we rely on people and and we're betting on, you know, humans to... To have a uh, sort of a, uh, sort of a, a ritual and so you know what what's, what is unique about this concept that obviously we've survived different sort of downturns with the economy and whatnot is that you know we all are gonna drink coffee we're all gonna wake up every morning for the most part you know we have these morning rituals and we're a essentially a located sort of uh, community driven space that is in the heart of a, a little CBD. Um, you know, this central business district of Arlington County is just a little little sort of hidden gem and a hub um, with all the county offices and all the corporations that are around us and above us. Um, you know, we've become part of people's everyday sort of routine. Um, and our price point is spot on and, and very inexpensive and low. So we're not a place you have to budget for. We're not a special occasion place. Um, so I think that that's how we've survived and we've, we've sort of thrived in the community. Um, but not to rest on our laurels. We're constantly doing outreach in the community to figure out how we can gain more business and um, and sort of reach a, a, a new market, a different market that we haven't tapped into. So there's it's it's constant. It's yeah. constant. There's never an opportunity to kind of just kind of sit back and just trust that that door is going to just flood in with people. So
0: yeah. What's next for you?
1: You know, uh, I'd love to finish my my third book, which is you know um, sort of telling my family's story of, of Cuba. Um, and have the, the recipes uh, of sort of my family and sort of um, some just kind of like almost like a damn good suite. It's going to be part travel log and uh, very personal stories, and then um, sprinkled in with some recipes. So it's not going to be a 100 recipe book uh, or a 200 recipe book for that matter, like My Grill Nation is. It, it's going to be you know a book that you could actually take to Miami or take to Cuba and kind of go hit the spots that I talk about and. Um, and just sort of learn a little bit more about you know that that side of my of my of my heritage. So um, uh, very all the books have been personal, but uh, this one is uh, probably the why the reason it's taking so long to wrap it up. Uh, so definitely wanting to finalize uh, the third book.
0: And lastly, I just wanted to know what is comfort
2: food for you?
1: You know, I mean, listen, I love so many different types of cuisine. I really do. Um, I love stews and porridge-type stuff, things that are just thrown in a pot and cooked down. I'm a crock-pot guy.
0: You use a a real uh, crock-pot? yeah. (laughs) I love
1: just things that just are normally tough but break down and turn into butter after a 10-hour period. You know, I love braising things. That's what I love about this type of time of year is, you know, my short ribs and everything else and anything you can put on top of parsnip puree or some whipped potatoes or something. So, you know, it depends. I'm a seasonal comfort food guy, you know. Now, go-to's always fall back on the American classic, you know, cheeseburgers. Uh, Love, you know, a a great pizza. Um, But um, anything from home, you know, really kind of uh, sort of um, uh, is a sort of... uh, of, um, an immediate sort of um, answer to sort of some voids that I may be feeling. So um, things that remind me of my mom's cooking or or growing up in New Orleans. So anytime I have something like that, it definitely sort of grounds me.
0: Yeah. David Goss, thank you so much for coming on my show.
1: You bet. Thank you for having me.
0: Coming up, how one Arlington Church has been observing Shrove Tuesday for 30 years. Parishioners at St. John's Episcopal have been worshiping at the church in the Glen Carlin neighborhood for more than 100 years, and they will host their annual Pancake Supper on Shrove Tuesday. I sat down with the church's rector, the Reverend Ann Barker, to learn more about this tradition. Who attends your church? Do you get a lot of people from
2: the neighborhood, or what's the congregation made up of? We have people from the neighborhood. We have people from close by the neighborhood, and we have some people who live far away who used to live here and come back here for services, but most of them live in nearby Arlington or nearby Falls Church. Tell us a little bit
0: about the upcoming Pancake Supper that you are hosting, and how long have you been hosting it?
2: Sure. Um, The person I talked to said we've been hosting it for longer than 30 years, which is well longer than I've been here, and perhaps even longer uh, the Pancake Supper is part of Shrove Tuesday. Shrove Tuesday comes from an old English word, shrive, and that means to confess and receive absolution for your sins because the Pancake Supper begins the season of Lent, and Lent is a penitential season. But the Pancake Supper is used to use up all the milk and... And the meat and the eggs and other, and the fats and other rich food that wouldn't be permitted to be eaten during Lent because people fasted or left off some rich foods. So, pancakes are a perfect way to use up milk and meat and butter and sugar and that kind of thing. We have uh, pancakes and ham and applesauce at our pancake supper. And so, as I said, that's the tradition is to use up that food. Um, Shrove Tuesday used to be a three-day celebration, but it was cut to one by the church, partially in response to the Mardi Gras effect when people would, would party and have celebrations before Lent. And the church wasn't too crazy about them having a three-day celebration before Lent, like in New Orleans or in Rio. Um, so the pancake supper um, in England has pancake races with it, and people race down the street with pancakes in the skillet um, to see who will, who can get to some place first. We don't have pancake races. We just have the pancakes and ham and applesauce, and we invite the neighborhood in to come to the pancake supper. And we, the men of the church, serve it, and we enjoy it very much.
0: What's the mood of the meal then, since you're entering a season of fasting? Is it a celebration, because you do have all this food, and it's yummy? And
2: Yes, it's a celebration. It's definitely a celebration, because Lent doesn't start till the next day, so it's a a celebration of of having the the good food and sharing good times together. And then after that,
0: what are the, I guess, the the eating protocol then for the congregation after that?
2: Well, in the Episcopal Church, we don't have anything that you must give up. Uh, People choose to either give something up or take something on, like uh, a volunteer project or something like that. Oftentimes, people will give up sweets. Uh, some people still give up meat on Fridays. Um, so it becomes a time of, of uh, penitence, and we impose ashes and um, talk about mortality during Lent. So people who observe Lent observe by giving up or taking on something. What is this custom meant to you personally? Um, I personally can't give up food, so I try to expand my prayer time during Lent, and it is a, a good preparation for the joy of Easter uh, because it's a it's a way to walk with Jesus on His trip to Jerusalem and through His crucifixion. And so our our penitence for our sins is in response to Jesus dying for our sins.
0: And after the Lent lenten season ends, is there then a meal that is kind of to break the fast that's similar to the pancake supper? or what does that look like?
2: There's not a specific meal, but obviously, families hold large meals, not like Thanksgiving, but but they do get together and have an Easter ham is the traditional food for for an Easter day. Um, The celebration and stuff comes with Easter egg hunts, with the eggs and the candy. Uh, And we hold an Easter egg hunt for kids at the church on Easter day.
0: And thank you so much for your time.
2: You're welcome. I'm glad to help. I posted links to St. John's Episcopal
0: and Bayou Bakery on my Facebook page, Arlington Melting Pot. Have a food tradition I should know about? Email me at werameltingpot at gmail.com. The music for the show has been provided by the Chromonauts. Thanks for tuning in to The Melting Pot on LP Arlington.